Hello and welcome to episode 166 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you. My name is Terrence M. Stanton. Happy Easter Thursday to you. Today is April 21st, 2022. And we are once again going to check out the work of Professor Peter Kwasniewski. This article was entitled The Removal of Tabernacles and the Desacrificialization of the Mass, published on April 8th, 2022 at 1peter5.com. So let's take a look. I really like the work of Professor Kwasniewski, as I had alluded to a couple days ago. I've read several of his books, highly recommend them all, and I want to help guide people, if I may, towards the traditional Latin Mass and Divine Liturgy and away from the Novus Ordo. As a matter of fact, I pray daily that the Novus Ordo will be abolished. The more I learn about the differences between traditional Latin Mass and Divine Liturgy versus the Novus Ordo, the more I'm committed to seeing hopefully in my lifetime that the Novus Ordo ends. We've been robbed of our patrimony. We've been robbed of what generations of Catholics have experienced, the beauty of the traditional Latin Mass. And our, our brothers in the Eastern churches are still attending divine liturgy. God bless them. I hope that someday soon I'll be able to attend either traditional Latin Mass or divine liturgy daily. So let's begin with the article. Why was the tabernacle removed from the high altar or kept away from the center of so many churches during the past 50 years? There are many reasons one could give for this decentering of our Lord Jesus Christ in the miracle of his abiding Eucharistic presence among us, including the specious academic rationales that propelled the widely lamented recovations of the post-conciliar period. But it may be that a subtler dynamic was also at work, and sadly, sometimes still is. As I discussed in my article here a month ago, the sacrificial nature of the Mass and the usus antiquior, the classical Roman rite enshrines and expresses in the most perfect way the reality that the Mass is essentially the sacrifice of Calvary, made present in our midst, the immolation of the Son of God, who wrought our salvation by his death of love on the cross and never ceases to enfold us in it down through the ages. The expression of the sacrificial dimension is not merely muted in the Novus Ordo, it is largely absent. In a vernacular mass, said Worsus Populum, in the usual manner with Eucharistic prayer number two as a default, how much is there in text or ceremony that strongly and unambiguously conveys the sacrifice of the cross? In the traditional Roman rite, the offertory luminously foreshadows this very sacrifice, clearly establishing the priest's right intention. The Roman canon is permeated with the language of oblation and sacrifice. The consecrations for which the offertory prepares, with their double genuflections and glorious elevations in the midst of an ocean of silence, piercingly evoke the lifting up of the Son of Man on Golgotha, John 3.14, John 12.32. In contrast, one might say that the Novus Ordo, at its best, emphasizes the presence of Christ in our midst, but not his sacrifice. The difference in catechesis. 
A difference in catechesis follows upon this difference in phenomenology. When teaching children what happens at Mass, one says something like the following, which comes in different packagings for different age levels. Jesus, dying on the cross, offered his life to God so that our sins could be washed away in his precious blood. Jesus wanted to make it possible for us to be right there so that our sins could be washed away too, and we could be one with him. So he gave us the Mass. The priest at the altar takes bread and wine, as Jesus did at the Last Supper, and, by God's power, changes these things into the body and blood of Jesus and raises them up on high, as Jesus was raised up high on the cross. God rejoices in this perfect gift of his Son and, in his love for him and for us who belong to him, he lets us receive the body and blood of Jesus in communion. This makes us as completely one with Jesus as we can be in this life. The Father is pleased with us as he is pleased with his Son, and we are prepared for heaven when it is our turn to offer up our own life to God with Jesus at the moment of our death. Granted, one might find a better way of putting it, but something along those lines will get a conversation going. Yet what really struck me years ago in working with my own children was how little catechesis, relatively speaking, was required in order for them to be able to perceive the meaning of the gestures of the priest at the traditional mass, and how powerfully these gestures remind us of the meaning we have learned and continually reinforce it, burning it into the memory. Once you know a little about what Jesus did at the Last Supper and on Good Friday, the actions and prayers practically hit you over the head with a chain of mysteries. Mediation, redemption, atonement, satisfaction, adoration. It doesn't take a lot to be equipped to perceive the traditional Mass as an awesome sacrifice joining earth to heaven, the sinner to the Savior, the altar to the cross. Conversely, I discovered that children did not as easily see the same connections at the Novus Ordo Masses we attended. The connections were not nearly so obvious. This Mass seemed like a ritual loosely related to the old Mass, but rather different in its purpose, more focused on the people with a lot of talking, winding up with the reception of communion. What was most of all hidden to the senses was that this liturgy is a sacrifice. It looks like a handling of bread and wine over a table a meal in imitation of the Last Supper. What I realized to my chagrin is that I had to assert, without much in the way of supporting evidence, that the Novus Ordo really was the holy sacrifice, even though it didn't look like one and didn't have the marvelous array of texts and ceremonies that underline the sacrificial nature of the action. That bothered me then, and it still bothers me now. It's as if the rite was designed by someone who wanted it not to be easy to perceive, by the combined strength of a simple catechism and a complex liturgy, that the Mass is the unbloody representation of the bloody sacrifice of our Lord on Calvary. In the sphere of the Novus Ordo, we need a complex catechism to go with a simple liturgy, because otherwise the truth won't be known. Because the liturgy does not embody and proclaim it the same way, we have to spend more time explaining, asserting, and keeping our fingers crossed that the brittle fideism will not give way to the ravages of forgetfulness, boredom, or heresy. So why were the tabernacles moved? Now for a theory about the moving of the tabernacle. The overwhelming miracle of our Lord's real presence in the Blessed Sacrament reserved in the tabernacle sets, if you will, 
a challenge to the mass. To speak in halting human terms, the only way the mass could be or do something greater than that miracle, the only way there could be no confusion of different orders of symbolism, is if the liturgy had the wherewithal to show forth the very sacrifice that allows for the abiding presence of the divine victim in the tabernacle. The mass must be seen and felt to outweigh the tabernacle so that there can be no confusion between the two orders, sacrifice and presence. That this is the case with the traditional mass vis-a-vis the tabernacle, I have no doubt. Even in European churches with enormous gilded tabernacles bedecked with extravagant decoration, the ancient mass holds its own, drawing all eyes and hearts to itself while it is happening and remaining the total master of the building, the altar, and the furnishings. It is clearly the reason for everything else, and its earnest spirit of prayer with invisible arms spread out and raised aloft gathers all into a single offering of praise. In contrast, a tabernacle has the wherewithal to overwhelm the Norvus Ordo, which is, in many respects, thin and fragile, barely able to hold its own in a magnificent church or at a splendid high altar. The sacrifice is phenomenologically overshadowed by the presence, both as it resides in the tabernacle and as it will reside upon the table. Therefore, by a kind of instinct for compensation, the tabernacle has to go. It must be removed, decentralized, hidden, so that a shy liturgy can muster some communicative force of its own. The liturgy has to be unobstructed, with no symbolic competition and no larger context, or it will vanish into the background. It has to claim as much space for itself as it can and push out all vestiges of a world of greater mass and gravity. Doesn't this make more sense out of the post-conciliar epidemic of ecclesiastical recovations and artistic monstrosities? Not only must the tabernacle go, but so must the high altar, and maybe the crucifix or stained glass windows, or elevated pulpit or communion rail, etc., etc. Maybe we need to tear it all down and replace it with an empty gray box that has no symmetrical curves and no ornamentation. At last, against the sterile stage, the clean, efficient, succinct lines of the Novus Ordo will ring out with metallic clarity, and the people who still care for old-fashioned devotions might find the reserved sacrament behind or over to the side somewhere as if placed in an ordinary timeout. The need to repeat what is not evident. Why, ever since the liturgical reform, has there been so great a need for the church's pastors to emphasize the truth, never disputed since the Council of Trent, that the Mass is really and truly a sacrifice? Why such a stream of papal and curial documents, most of them ignored, Why do the statistics get worse and worse? If what is done at the Novus Ordo Mass looked more like a sacrifice, if it expressed the sacrificial reality in a sensible and intelligible way, there would be no need for endless reassertions and clarifications. The doctrine that the Mass is a true and proper sacrifice was taught de fide by the Council of Trent, and all denials of it were anathematized. The Mass of St. Pius V embodies that Tridentine doctrine perfectly. As long as the Mass remains faithful to the fundamental principle of sacramentality, namely, that something ought to signify what it does and do what it signifies, it will be known to do what it really does by a manifest and unambiguous signification. This is why Ratzinger, 
could observe this connection with Trent and the liturgy wars. Only against this background of the effective denial of the authority of Trent can one understand the bitterness of the struggle against allowing the celebration of Mass according to the 1962 Missal after the liturgical reform. The possibility of so celebrating constitutes the strongest, and thus, for them, the most intolerable contradiction of the opinion of those who believe that the faith in the Eucharist formulated by Trent has lost its validity. The Uphill Battle of Catechesis We have seen the polls that prove the loss of faith among Catholics in the real, substantial presence of our Lord in what used to be called by everyone the most blessed sacrament of the altar. What would be enormously interesting to see is a poll that, having first identified mainstream Catholics and traditional Catholics with a few deft questions, proceeded to ask each group, do you believe that the Mass is a real sacrifice, that of Christ on the cross? It is not hard to imagine the results. The former group would, most, would mostly say no. As a matter of fact, more than a few might be surprised or shocked at the question itself, which could introduce a concept they have never heard. And the latter group would mostly say yes. Their answers would mirror perfectly their experience of the liturgy. If someone says that the difference is that the traditional mass goers are better catechized than the mainstream group, that only pushes the question further back. Why are the better catechized so often attending the usus antiquior? Why is this their choice when they have a choice? Or why are the faithful who attend it more inclined to seek their own formation and to offer authentic catechetical formation to their children? One cannot point to more or less adequate catechesis without pointing to a real empirical connection between the level of catechesis and the type of liturgy attended. The causality flows in both directions. The classic axiom, lex orandi, lex credendi, tells us not only that the way we pray shapes the way we believe, but also that what we believe is going to shape the way we pray and the choices we make about where and how we pray as Catholics. Although its work is the glorification of God and the sanctification of man, the liturgy has always been a powerful catechizer. With the Reformed Mass, there is a dearth of symbolic and textual catechesis at the heart of Catholic life. Although repetition is always necessary for human learning, there is a big difference between the repetition that works because it functions mnemonically, excuse me, because it functions mnemonically, and the repetition that indicates a failure of something actually sticking. Catechists, preachers, parents need to keep repeating that the Mass is a sacrifice because the Novus Ordo has so little that even remotely suggests it. Trying to convince people of something they cannot glimpse with their own senses is, to say the least, an uphill battle. We rejoice again and again to be the unworthy heirs of such a tremendous liturgical treasure as the traditional Roman rite of the Mass, which beautifully, reverently, and unambiguously expresses, confirms, and exalts in the holy mysteries of the Catholic faith. Thus ends the article. And in no way, shape, or form am I taking a dig at people who attend the Novus Ordo. I attended it for decades. I think a lot of good Catholics who attend the Novus Ordo will be even better Catholics if they regularly attend traditional Latin Mass 
or a divine liturgy. So please seek them out, no matter how far you have to drive and experience the beauty and the grandeur of the traditional Latin mass or of divine liturgy. And perhaps in future episodes, we'll discuss a little bit the differences between the traditional Latin mass and divine liturgy. Oremos. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Prayer for the Hastening of the Triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary by Bishop Athanasius Schneider. O Immaculate Heart of Mary, Holy Mother of God and our tender mother, look upon the distress in which the whole of mankind is living due to the spread of materialism, godlessness, and the persecution of the Catholic faith. In our own day, the mystical body of Christ is bleeding from so many wounds caused within the church by the unpunished spread of heresies, the justification of sins against the sixth commandment, the seeking of the kingdom of earth rather than that of heaven, the horrendous sacrileges against the most holy Eucharist, especially through the practice of communion in the hand and the Protestant shaping of the celebration of the Holy Mass. Amidst these trials appeared the light of the consecration of Russia to thine immaculate heart by the Pope in union with the world's bishops. In Fatima, thou didst request the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays of the month. Implore thy divine Son to grant a special grace to the Pope that he might approve the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. May Almighty God hasten the time when Russia will convert to Catholic unity, mankind will be given a time of peace, and the Church will be granted an authentic renewal in the purity of the Catholic faith, the sacredness of divine worship, and the holiness of Christian life. O Mediatrix of all graces, O Queen of the Most Holy Rosary, and our sweet Mother, turn thine eyes of mercy towards us and graciously hear this, our trusting prayer. Amen. The Memorare to St. Joseph. Remember, O most chaste spouse of the Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, my spiritual father, and beg your protection. O foster father of the Redeemer, despise not my petitions, but in your goodness hear and answer me. Amen. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis, sancti Osef, terra daimonem, ora pro nobis. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you very kindly, my friends, for listening to episode 166 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. Once again, my name is Terence M. Stanton. Please share Our Lady's podcast with everyone you know, and please pray for the eternal salvation of Pope Francis. Goodbye, and God love you.